this used to be Tyler. This is Megan. And this is The Office Hours, the podcast where two literature professors analyze the great American story. Hey, Megan. Hello, hello. So uh, everybody listening, I have some news. Uh, I've changed my name um, from Tyler to Tegan, and I use the pronouns she, her, or they, them. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's what's going on. Cool. Well, Tegan, I think I want to get to the important question here. Yeah. That I'm sure people have asked you. And that is, how does this affect your relationship to that's what she said jokes? <laughs> Profoundly. Um, okay, I've thought a lot about this, okay. and I and I've come to the to the um, to this conclusion. I now believe that all that's what she said jokes are actually about me. So okay. I am the she in the that's what she said. Okay, so you're taking the narcissism of a middle <laughs> spot, <laughs> combining it with that's what she said, and making it your own. I love it. I think that this is a good approach for you. <laughs> I thought about, you know, uh, uh, I mean, as much as I desperately want to cancel you, you know this. Uh, <laughs> I, just, I love it. That's what she said joke. I do think, uh, you know, sort of my, my one, one, I remember, especially like when, I think we used to make a lot of that's what she said jokes when we lived together and we would switch up the genders quite often. We would kind of go back and forth between that's what he said and that's what she said. And, uh, you know, could that have been my kind of gender fluid, uh, you know, trans, um, you know, uh, coming out? I, I don't know who can say, um, <laughs> maybe it all began. Maybe you're the one who did this to me, Megan. <laughs> It's, I, I think those, that's what she said, he said jokes are an early and important part of the story. <laughs> but why can't it be that's what they said, you know? Well, I think you can add that to the mix. Although it does, yeah, it raises some questions. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So, but I definitely, every that's what she said joke I either hear or speak, I am going to try and really picture you being the she. <laughs> what kind of character does this build up for you Ooh, that's a great yeah let's let's find that out we're on this journey together who is this she in the collective that's what she said yeah actually okay so yeah for the sake of argument what if it was always one woman <laughs> and like all of these things are things that she has been saying like what would that tell us about her what kind of things does she suffer what does she wake up and think about you know <laughs> I think uh <laughs> I can't well, think of anything not embarrassing, not too embarrassing to say in response yeah. to that. We'll just leave it. We'll just leave it at that. Um well, so should we head on over to the which where we want to go first? Well, I've got to go to accounting <laughs> because oh. I have several regrets. <laughs> you all right as soon as i started Let's listening as soon as i started listening to our last episode i was like making notes um i had some problems oh. number one number one i said ben franklin was working on paper money in 1723 i was wrong he moved to philadelphia in 1723 
and witnessed the beginning of paper money printing in America there. But it was actually 1731 when he got his first printing contract. So he was still a very young man, but just wanted to make sure for our historians out there that I wasn't off by those years for Ben Franklin. Um, did that notice bother you in your listen back, Tyler? Oh, it was so <laughs> it was so hard for me to I can't remember my name half the time. So please. <laughs> Uh, no, uh, it was really hard for me to listen. Yeah. I was like, if you can't get the dates of Ben Franklin, right? Like, how can I trust all of the things that you're saying? Um, no, I didn't notice. And I'm curious, did somebody bring this to your attention? No, no. Oh. I just real. I just realized as soon as I listened to it, oh, I pulled the date from another place in that article that I was referencing and not the correct one. So I know. May, may our ma massive historian fan base forgive us. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Number two, I enjoyed Michael um, too much, I think, at the wedding. And you were asking me, you know, if it was my wedding and he were to force his way up into the wedding party or whatever, would I still take so much pleasure in him? And I said, probably not, <laughs> but I still really wanted to go to weddings with similar characters to Michael because it's interesting and it's fun to watch. But I think that that was too insensitive to the people who are having the wedding. And so I felt badly about that. <laughs> so that's number two. Can I just <laughs> respond to that part real quick? Is that okay? Please. Uh, well, just for, okay. So there was this girl that I dated in college and I remember that she, I wish I could remember what specific movie it was, but she really didn't like comedies. She didn't like most movies um, and especially not comedies or horror movies, which are like kind of my favorite genres, but whatever. Um, but anyway, of com I think about this all the time and I actually think about it all the time when we're doing the podcast, but she said she very seriously was kind of like, um, it really upsets me to watch comedies because if people did those things in real life, it would be so hurtful and like so offensive. Oh. And I was like, yeah, but it's not real life. Like that's, that's what's <laughs> funny about it. And that's what's like kind of, it allows us the experience to have a, a kind of, you know, somewhere in between yeah. absolute reality and, and complete fantasy, but uh, uh, not so much for her. But anyway, I was... <laughs> But I feel like sometimes I'm uh, playing into that when we have these debates where we take it like, okay, what if somebody did this in real life? What would that be like? And, uh, mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, that's what we do because we're overthinkers. Um, we are. Anyway, uh, but yeah. I will say that I think that this philosophy of life, of enjoying the Michael Scotts of the actual world could you know if I could apply it to the people who are close to me or involved with me I think it could be a helpful approach to sort of step back yes. and separate yourself from it yes. and be like this person is actually humiliating himself and so maybe I don't need to be so bothered and so annoyed I can just sit back and let it play out and you know let him bear it embarrass himself but i don't have to get up in turmoil about it i love that it's very zen it's very uh and I, but i i think you're right i think that's wonderful i had this um maybe i've mentioned this before but i had a therapist say to me uh okay so i had somebody 
saying who would say really like passive aggressive things to me in a professional setting. And I was like, what do I do? You know, do I like, do I confront it? Do I, do, do we try to, you know, I, whatever, like it was making me defensive. It was making whatever. And her advice was, she was like, well, the next time this person says something like that, just say, well, that's a weird thing to say. And then just move on. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll try that. You know, but I was like, that's crazy. I'm not going to do that, you know, whatever, but all right, I'll try it. You know, whatever. It's not going to work. And then I did, and it totally worked. <laughs> it was just like, oh, that's that's a weird thing to say. Anyway, so back to the topic at hand or whatever. And, you know, uh, I don't know I'm always like wanting to inhabit that place, although it's very hard. Uh, but I feel like that's how people like Daryl and um, who's the other person? Bob Vance Advanced Refrigeration. I feel like they kind of. Yeah, yeah. Michael just kind of passes through them rather than. Yes, they're able to give themselves a healthy separation. I I love that. That's a weird thing to say. <laughs> and I have someone in mind that I'm going to try that on as soon as I get the opportunity. Are you going to text me? Is it me? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> You're going to suddenly start hearing that a lot. Like, wait, I gave you this line. <laughs> but back to my regrets. Number three, I said great way too many times. I don't know what I was doing with the word great in the last podcast, but I needed a thesaurus that would help me say instead things like enjoyable, amusing, delightful, lovely, pleasant, diverting, wonderful, marvelous, superb, and so on. So I've got my thesaurus up. Please call me out if I just end up on the generic great too many times. Why is that my word? I don't know. Oh, I don't, I'm afraid to listen back and find out what my version of great is. Uh, I don't think you have one. Uh, but <laughs> I always think of myriad as a word that I got from the thesaurus. Like when I was trying oh, to yeah. how do I say different, many things or whatever, you know, and I would work that into undergraduate essays. Uh, Moby Dick can mean a myriad of things. <laughs> <laughs> I think myriad is a great word if you use it once within, say, 200 pages you know you can't, <laughs> you can't drop it too often or it gives itself away you know what I mean I do I do but Can an I... occasional myriad is really really good do you have a similar policy on writing with exclamation points because I don't think I've ever used an exclamation point in my academic writing but some academics do and I'm always like bold choice I mean, I would completely agree with you. It is a bold choice. I am not a user of exclamation points in academic writing. In emails and text messages, though, I think that they are essential for communicating tone. Oh, yeah. I would say that I overuse them in email. <laughs> I have to go back through my emails and delete exclamation points so I don't end every sentence with one. Yeah, yeah. But it is, I do think in emails, it's better to err on the side of a bit of excess. Yeah. So, you know, there's a limit to all things. True. So that was number three. I have two more. <laughs> Last time was a real doozy for me. Uh, so number four, oh, I missed a key scene that I just wanted to read into the record. And that is the interview at the wedding, when Michael says, I do, I know a fair amount about fine food and drink. 
And then he swirls his wine in his glass and sniffs it. And he says, this is a white. <laughs> it's so funny. It's just so funny. I think the confidence and the pretentiousness that he has, and then he comes back with, this is a white. It's it's just a beautiful moment. Can I actually add in a, a regret here? Like tag on a sub regret? Um, Someone else needs to regret something. Because I had forgotten my, uh, I forgot about this regret, but I felt that it was a failing on my part that we did not talk about the fact that Michael's like, I, uh, the chicken was um, undercooked. So I sent it back. And Phyllis is like, there is no chicken. It's just fish or something. And, and he's like, I'll look into it or something like that. that I can't remember the phrasing. But yes. Man, I thought that was so funny. And just like even the idea that he couldn't tell the difference between chicken and fish. Uh, and that he, I mean, we talked a bunch about him wanting a role and wanting to be a savior and wanting, you know, be important. Or whatever. Yeah. You know, the idea that he's going to fix the food crisis was amazing to me it also reminded me slightly of i don't know have you ever seen there was like i feel like maybe this was a few years ago where on instagram or twitter it was when twitter was maybe more big i don't know but uh people i don't know if this was real or not but people were posting like as if it was real and they were like i never knew about um oh, what do you call it like basically like seared uh, oh medium rare chicken they were like, I never heard about medium rare chicken before. How come nobody told me? And they would post these pictures of basically like looking like kind of an ahi tuna where it was seared on quickly and then completely pink and raw in the middle. And people being like, oh, my God, raw chicken. It's so good. And then others responding being like, do not eat that. That is so dangerous. Uh, anyway, <laughs> do you remember this particular cultural meme or no? I do not, but it's really funny. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but who knows if it was real or if people were just anyway. Yeah, called that to mind. But back to your deep list of shame and regret. <laughs> okay, so the last one is something where I just made a vague claim without evidence, and I felt that I needed to supply some more specifics. And that was when we were talking about songs and about Scrantonicity. And I said that maybe Jim and Pam's song really is the Scrantonicity song that they first heard when they listened when they watched the video of Scrantonicity and discovered that Kevin was in a band. So I went back to check that song is by the police and it is please don't stand so close to me mm. by Scrantonicity. So my proposal is that that is Jim and Pam's song. Interesting. Please don't stand so close to me. I'm trying to think is there a double meaning there? Yeah. That's a good question. If, be if, if things with Jim and Pam continue to advance, maybe we can circle back and continue and consider. I don't see that happening. I think uh, <laughs> you don't think it's leading in that direction. No, I don't think so. I think uh, uh, what's her name? Jim and Karen forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll have to find out what the, what the next wedding will be. Okay. And my my final regret. Let's add a number six. Getting your name wrong. I'm sorry for that. What do you mean? Already oh, before in this episode, yes. Oh, oh we're just going to cut this out, right? I figure <laughs> we'll just go on. <laughs> you have no, uh, well, okay. If we keep this in, let me just say for listeners and for everybody 
out there in the world uh it's totally okay it's all good you know like it's been such a strange experience to change my name and then to forget my new name sometimes <laughs> or to slip into my old pronouns and the way that i like to think about it is that i'm adding an identity rather than subtracting i don't hate tyler as a name and i certainly don't hate tyler as a you know a, one aspect of myself uh and so nobody nobody can get it wrong because i am all of those things and i feel like i'm a very gender fluid person and so um it's not like i hated he either you know it's just doesn't feel right anymore and so uh, anyway yeah uh nobody needs to feel any regret whatsoever thank you for your understanding i will say that when i first knew you as tyler which started 16 years ago. Holy shit. A long time. Um, but when I first knew you and really wanted to be friends with you, I will say it was not an abundance of masculinity that drew me to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. All right, we're not deleting this or the podcast. <laughs> so, my, so my associations with the name Tyler, I wouldn't say super macho anyway <laughs> oh my god this is so it's so affirming i have to tell i know that it's like there is there is a version of coming out and people don't want to hear i knew all along you know and i and i i get that like i totally but i have to say it's been very affirming for me for people to be like yeah it's not really a surprise or like this isn't actually a big shift for how i think about you or <laughs> Um, something you had said when we were talking on the phone, you said something like, you're very, I think of you as very gender open, I think mm -hmm. was a phrase that you said. And I was like, oh, fuck, I love that so much. And I was like, that's how I want to be read. And I think transitioning for me is just making that more evident for people who don't see me that way or initially mm -hmm. see me that way. So that's actually really affirming to hear <laughs> that I, uh, you, you always saw me as the, uh, uh, whatever. Like Whatever that. I am. Just just gender open, not gender open. Yeah, not a not an excess of <laughs> the masculinity of say a Todd Packer. <laughs> <laughs> oh really? Because that's how I saw myself. I really <laughs> thought I was passing as <laughs> but now we get to do... Todd Packer up until now. I'm really excited because now we open up a whole new range. I had asked, I asked this Meg on, uh, to Megan on the phone. I was like, is it okay if we now add in a ton of trans readings of The Office? And Megan was like, um, you already started that. And I was like, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so buckle up. Yeah, so we can continue. And I think you will have some opportunities. Oh, I'm excited. Um, should we head to another corner of the office, perhaps supply shelf. Absolutely. So I just have one thing for supply shelf and it may not be what you expect. Mm -hmm. uh, I did not look up anything on the history of paper. <laughs> and uh, But what I did want to briefly comment on is picking up a few episodes ago, we talked about um, buying the DVDs. And so I'm now, it is very irritating to me that I no longer have Peacock. I'm saving like $6 a month, which is surprisingly necessary in my adult life. Um, but so it's irritating because I can't just pull up the episode and like watch it on my phone or something like that while I'm, you know, whatever, doing things. But 
So, but it's kind of a nice little, it's a nice little treat now. I like sit down, I put the DVD in, but what I wanted to, the reason I'm bringing this up in Supply Shelf is I want to comment on the DVD packaging because it is a piece of shit. So let me just explain this to you. They have one, like, it's it's one big box mm-hmm. and it, or it's a sleeve. It's like a cardboard sleeve. And then within that are two separate um plastic cases and within and then say again yeah two and it's split it like season something like season five and then up to whatever seven or eight I can't remember nine I don't know maybe it's split at six and then it ends at nine but so so I'm in season we're in season three right and so the one case is you open it up and it has like five or six seasons worth of DVDs and of course because it's super like cheap they're all stacked on top of each other in these weird little flippy plastic things and so you've got like four discs on one on one um page let's call it because each page has like two notches and so you have to like cut the dvds are layered so you've got like one dvd one dvd one dvd and then to get so to get to one on the bottom you've got to take off all of them and i'm terrified i'm going to scratch them all and then to now you're saying to yourself tyler like well how do you know which episode is on which disc like well they give you this like one little piece of paper and it's like very flimsy it's not very nice and like you you open that up and it lists every disc and every episode or it's just poorly organized and it is designed to make you insane however you put the dvd in and my god what a treasure trove and like, not only do you get, you know, deleted scenes and stuff like that, which I'm not watching because we have made a, a blood oath that we yeah. won't look at those until, um, until, you know, the end of this, until we reach the end and we redo episodes and stuff like that. So I haven't looked at any of that, but the, the menu screens are really cute. And so I feel like we got to talk about them sometimes, but like, there's little animations there but basically like you know you open it up and it's like michael's office or michael's desk and then you put in a different desk or you put in a different disc and it'll be like dwight's desk and stuff like that and you'll hear things in the back it's really quite impressive so uh uh yeah anyway that's i I felt that that was somehow appropriate that's my so i guess my review is a plus digital design I'm going to go C minus packaging design. Yeah. It seems like a real mismatch there. And it feels like they tried too hard to cut corners and save paper and not make something that is an experience more worthy of Dunder Mifflin. I agree. I agree. Oh, yeah. There should be a papery component, right? Or the cardboard or whatever. Yeah, that's a good point. That's I'm surprised. I'm surprised, but very interested. Glad to hear, though, the D, that the most essential part, the DVDs themselves, are functional and effective. I'm just worried I'm going to be scratching them in about three seconds, but whatever. Um, we'll endure. Anything- Don't, um, this reminds me of having a, a friend in high school who borrowed one of my CDs and put it in the pocket of his cargo pants with keys. Oh, that's the most 90s story. <laughs> so anyways, don't do that. Don't put them in your cargo pants that I'm sure you don't have. Anyways. Can we briefly talk about a cargo pant? What are, what are your feelings about a cargo? 
you know, they're kind of coming back for women, actually. <laughs> so, oh, so this is an option for me now. You may be joining just in time. <laughs> I heard high-waisted jeans are coming back in style as well, and I'm not sure that that's a thing I'm excited about. Yeah, yeah, those have been those have been here for a little while. I'm I'm not I'm not thrilled about them, but you know, also maybe better, I guess, than the really really low ones. Oh, that's true. Um, cause then, you know, you could not bend over. Um, but what was the question? Cargo pants? How do yeah, I what feel? Do you think of a cargo pant? Um, Were you I'm, a wearer of cargo pants? I was. Oh yeah. I believe that. <laughs> Were um, they perhaps made by Jenko? Oh, no, I, I did not have, I didn't have the right body for Jenko jeans, but, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, they were those ridiculous boy jeans of the 90s that were so big and the back pockets went down to their knee basically sometimes further and I was like oh those are hot <laughs> hey <laughs> boys really wear them, but you know <laughs> so that was a that was a detour <laughs> I just was curious your thoughts on cargo pants. Well, I do, have, I do have some fashion content that I want to discuss this episode that's not entirely unrelated. Ooh, I have a fashion question for you as well. So maybe we should dive in. I'll just quickly say for uh, the, what do we, oh, receptionist desk. We have no messages um, at this time, but you should always uh, be sending us emails. We haven't heard from folks in a little bit. Um, and so that either means uh, we have no listeners or... Um, We've exhausted your goodwill, uh, but maybe spread, sp tell a friend about the podcast, you know, and then get them to email in. Uh, anyway, so our email address is the best office hours podcast at gmail.com. Um, so send us questions, queries, suggestions, anything at all. So should we, uh, should we get to it? Get to it. Do you have the episode description? I do. Ooh, I do. pop it in the chat. Let me, I'll read it this time. I'll be slow because I don't have it ready in the chat. I think I might have to read it this time because I closed oh, the just document it, yeah, yeah. where I typed it. <laughs> Next time we'll be better prepared. But this is season three, episode 17, Business School. And here is our summary. Pam invites the office to her art exhibit, art Tegan, last couple episodes, I'm having trouble with reading. So let me try this one more time. Pam invites the office to her art exhibition. Michael speaks at Ryan's business school. Dwight battles a bat. Oh, this is interesting because we talked about the three versus the two mm -hmm. phrases. Um, yeah, what's your thought on that description real quick? I tend to prefer the two to the three. <laughs> Mm -hmm. partly because it just kind of acknowledges you know what we can't fit it all so let's just say two things it doesn't even pretend to try to cover it all but I do like this one I mean there really are these three distinct pieces so it does make sense that they would choose this and I think that this is more accurate than the last one it does less kind of editorializing I guess like it puts less of a slant or less of an opinion onto what's happening in people's perception so all of it is just objectively true Pam invites the office to her art exhibition Michael speaks at Ryan's business school Dwight battles a bat 
all of those are just objective truths. So this is a good news reporting kind of summary. Yeah, it's interesting. It's very verb forward. Mm -hmm. uh, invites, speaks, battles. Very yeah. strong. Strong mm -hmm. verbs. Uh, well, where do you want to start with business school? I'm very excited to talk about it. I feel like this is a good episode. This is a good episode. Why do you think it's a good episode? Um, I think, well, first it's like peak cringe, Michael, for me, um, you know, the speaking at the school, the, the ripping up the textbook, those, those scenes are like so cringy. Um, but it's also, I think there's like, it gives us a lot of really interesting Michael, like, um, psychology and, and, or, and, and his values and, yeah, um, so I think that there's that. I think it's really funny. Like the bat stuff is really hilarious. The Pam storyline doesn't feel too abbreviated. It actually feels pretty, pretty like weighty as a where it ends up is really interesting. And so the sentimentality kind of worked for me anyway. So I just feel like it's kind of firing on all cylinders. It's funny. It's got some interesting character stuff. And then of course, for us, like this episode, we've been waiting for this episode in some ways because this is going to give us a chance to talk about the cultural representation of a college classroom, which you and I are college professors. That's like, you know, our deal. So I'm kind of excited to talk about that part too. What about you? What do you think of this one? Yeah, I, I like this episode. I think it combines the comedy and the really funny things. And I find myself laughing at things that seem stupid so for so for example when white when dwight discovers the bat in the ceiling and he's standing up on that high part of the reception desk and the way he falls is so funny i don't think of this as a show that's driven by physical comedy but that's a moment for example of physical comedy that i just burst out laughing when i watch because he just goes back like straight kind of falling down on his back it's got to be really bad um so it's got that but then it also has the really poignant really touching relationships and emotions like we see with Pam and Michael at the end and we'll definitely need to get into that scene as well so I think this one has got a lot going on I, I I feel like the bat I'm going to be able to cover more quickly I have very little to say about it so can we start with that portion yeah. of the summary? Dwight battles a bat. That's a great idea. Yeah. What are your what do you have to say about the bat? This is what I want to know. Who would you be in this scenario? If you find a bat in your office building, how do you respond? You know, do you do the Angela and stop, drop, and roll and put a plastic rain? What do you even call those things? Like a rain bonnet or something on your head? Do you scream and run? Do you sharpen a stake? Are you Dwight and do you take charge? Who are you in this? It's a really interesting question because on the one hand, I I think there's a part of me that would probably feel like I, I would be like sort of excited for a break in the routine mm -hmm. and would want to have some, I, I don't know that I would go full Dwight, but I could imagine being maybe a bit of creed in the situation or, you know, <laughs> partial Dwight where I'm kind of like, yeah, we, like, you know, there, there's a mystery to solve and a problem to deal with. Like, cause I like solving problems. On the other hand, I would like to be Stanley 
where he's just like, all right, I'm out. Like, nope. I forget what he said. Yeah, he puts his he puts his coat over his head, right? And just, so he just says goodbye, I think. <laughs> That's very, very on brand for Sam. I yes. love that. Uh, yeah, what about you? Who would you be? I think I'd be Dwight. And I like to think of you as the creed to my Dwight. <laughs> that feels right to me. We have recently had in the English department at my school, birds sort of regularly get in and I don't know why but it's really kind of sad because they're the, they are these sweet cute birds um who get in and then they just can't get out so it's really hard to kind of funnel them toward the door to help them get out you know because yeah. you um if it's a bat I would definitely be more creeped out by a bat than a bird but I also am not too squeamish and I would be willing to take it on the other thing I just really liked about the scene I think probably my favorite part is when Kelly says um you know oh don't don't kill it what's what's her line don't hurt that bat creed it's a living thing with feelings and a family and then once it starts flying loose and coming yes. by she says, kill it kill it, kill it. <laughs> I <laughs> so love that I just thought that was a nice example too of how much our uh moral stances can be partly about circumstances and you know as long as we're afraid of the bat we can be super pro uh pro bat protection protective measures but once that bat flies in things get real i thought the bat um was cute when we get to see it um and you thought it was cute yeah, I do have a thing for bats, I must say. And I was wondering if you've ever seen, there's a really, I'm I can't, I'm, I'm sounding like a very online person. Uh, and I guess, maybe <laughs> I, I don't know, but there's a, there's a little video I've seen a few times on Instagram. I'll have to send you if you've not seen it. But it's like, basically, if somebody's taken um, a, a, like a video of bats sleeping and like turned it upside down and... Mm. Um, I think it's sleep anyway, but the bats upside down and basically like put like a kind of um gothy song over it. And they're like, you know, if you, you know, basically like bats looking like they're in a goth club dancing um, you know, in this way. It's, it's funnier than it sounds, I hope. Uh, but in any case, I have to send it to you. But yeah, I did wonder, I was kind of curious if the bat was CGI. Um, and if it is, I thought it still looked pretty good. Um mm -hmm. I thought it was effective. I love the joke of Creed being like, yeah, what do you need? You know, and yeah. I really enjoyed Kevin being like, I'm a hero. Uh, <laughs> thought that was awesome. Uh, but the real, okay. So we got to talk about the subplot of this subplot, which is that within it, Jim pranks Dwight uh, as pretending that he's been bitten by the bat and is now becoming a vampire. Yeah. I have to say, this is, it walks right up to the line of too kooky for me. Mm. And uh, there are moments where I'm like, oof, I don't know if I can allow this. Because mm -hmm. it's, it's like slightly hard for me. It's not hard for me to imagine that Dwight would believe vampires are real. It's just some something about it. Like, feels, I guess, I guess the joke is always on how incredulous he is, right? Um is that the right word? Am I using that right? Or is it credulous? Oh, fuck. Dwight? 
Yeah, how gullible he is. Let's go with gullible. Yeah, I think, I think credulous because like how believing. That's it. Yeah. How, how, yeah, he like, but either way, it's very funny to me the way it plays out. We got the, you know, the light, the crucifix, the garlic bread, the putting the coat up like a, like Dracula's um, collar and cape. And then we have him walking uh, to the car with a coat over his head. Is And so all of that is really funny to me. And one thing I appreciated about it is it feels to me like one of the first times we see a prank from Dwight's perspective and not from Jim's. So we don't really see him planning and cultivating it hmm. from the inside. So we're we're experiencing it from the outside. And it's I found that interesting. Yeah. But the, the one part of it that I like kind of holds me back, and I was curious for your take, is basically like, okay, so assume that Dwight believes that Jim is a vampire. It surprised me that Jim or that Dwight says something like, Jim's on his own journey now, and I wish him well. Wouldn't Dwight want to basically stake Jim? Like, and I was like, isn't Jim playing with fire here? If Dwight believes that he's a vampire, what's to stop him from breaking in his house and shooting him or whatever, like he did with the neighbor's dog? Uh, so, yeah, uh, it, it, this seems like a dangerous game to play. Is this, I, I don't know enough the whole culture of vampires. Are you supposed to stake them? a great question i would love to discuss this at length but canonically typically yes you're supposed to drive a wooden stake through the heart if we're talking bram stoker's dracula we're also cutting the head off putting garlic in the in it in the mouth um but that's why dwight has a has creed make a broom into a stake yes correct oh see there's so much more to this than i even knew and so the garlic bread vampires are repelled by garlic and yeah. crucifixes, hmm. crosses. That's all vampire lore. There's a lot going on here. I did wonder if Jim was playing on Twilight a little bit because Twilight kind of has, when he's sort of like feels this new power and stuff like that, you know, the vampires yeah. are kind of idealized and sexy and powerful or whatever, but Twilight didn't come out for another year after this episode and while the books might have been out i don't think there was it was the same cultural phenomenon yeah hmm i guess i did kind of like it how that that point you read where dwight says at the end that jim's on his own journey now so it doesn't even though he is suspicious that maybe it was a vampire bat and that it would make sense that a vampire bat would come to a Sylvania, Pennsylvania. <laughs> he doesn't let it get to him too much. No. Like the other things, it'll more get under his skin or drive him a little crazy. And this, it, it doesn't bother him so much. He's focused on his task of dealing with the bat and Jim has to go on his own journey. So it doesn't quite work in some ways. The other thing that stood out to me about this prank was just the context that it taps into for Dwight. I guess this is one where it's good at knowing its audience. Jim is good at knowing his audience. And I just really love it when Dwight is organizing and he does the interview where he says, I don't have a lot of experience with vampires, but I have hunted werewolves. I shot one once, but by the time I got to it, it had turned back into my neighbor's dog. And the thing I really like about this is, I think you know, 
this is an unfortunate aspect of me, but I have sort of an aversion to anything that goes outside of realism, anything yes. science fictiony, anything reality bending. So I cannot watch a show that involves actual werewolves. I cannot read Twilight. I just cannot touch that stuff for some reason. I don't know why. But I thought that this was such a nice way of introducing the idea of the werewolf and then really quickly undercutting it. Dwight, <laughs> Dwight, I don't know if it's his own rationalization, you know, where he kind of has to convince himself once he's killed his neighbor's dog that it was indeed a werewolf who just turned back into the dog. But I thought that was very funny. And I wondered about Dwight's relations with his neighbors. But I'll say it also made me curious what is your take on werewolves? And I ask because I'm pretty sure you have one. <laughs> okay. The, uh, you know what? That's that's what it, uh, listeners, that's what it feels like to be seen. Okay. That's that's validation. All right. Not getting my pronouns or whatever. It's it's about knowing <laughs> that I have a werewolf take because I do. How much time do you have? <laughs> yeah, funny because you and I have never talked about this. I've never heard about your take on werewolves, but I I just sensed it that it was there. <laughs> okay, first I will say that um, just as a follow up to what you were saying about Dwight, I think uh, the where I thought that joke was going on the first watch was, uh, but changed back into my neighbor, like oh, that he yes. shot his neighbor because. <laughs> That would have made not not that it would have made more sense, but that would sort of match with a vampire lore because yeah. often in vamp I'm sorry werewolf movies you kill the werewolf or you shoot the werewolf with a silver bullet and then it they come over and it's like oh there's the they've transformed back. Listeners, you can't see Megan like rolling her eyes <laughs> as I describe this. This is there were no eye rolls. It's just I just feel stunned by the level of knowledge that you bring. I could feel your body sort of repulse in a way. It was like it was pretty pretty incredible. Uh uh I'm like, "Hey Megan, I'm trans." And you're like, "Not a problem." Like, "Okay, so what?" You know, and I'm like, "Hey Megan, I'm writing a werewolf uh fan fiction." And you're like, "I I I need some time to process this." <laughs> Um, this is the side of you that I struggle with. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, on, I'm here. I'm here to listen and learn, Tyler. <laughs> Tegan. <fuck. laughs> I'm still the same old Tegan. I just like werewolves. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Okay. This I did. This I did know. I did know this was coming, and I am <laughs> open to hearing about it. No, uh, my second thing is we, I do want to drill down at some point on your aversion to non-realities in fiction, uh, like, or hyper-reality or, or sur surrealism or, you don't, mm -hmm. yeah, you definitely don't like, so anyway, we got to come back to why, what, what's that, who hurt you and how this is all a childhood <laughs> trauma. Um, but okay. Here's my thoughts I, I, off the top of my head, man, I wish you'd texted me this before. I'm so excited. Uh, um, just quick off the top of my head, I feel as if there are no good werewolf movies. Like I, I like okay. So there's two classic universal black and white 
werewolf movies and both of them have their pros and their cons you've got the wolfman and you've got werewolf of london um and they're both fine but they are nowhere near as epic as a frankenstein or i would even argue a, a mummy just to see your eyes glaze over is <laughs> is to feel is <laughs> really trying to stay engaged here <laughs> i know um but i think that the reason for that is because werewolf stories are always the fucking same and so it's always like a guy it's always a white guy and it's always like a, usually a white upper class guy who's like you know doesn't believe in any kind of supernatural thing or whatever gets bitten by a where gets bitten by like a werewolf but unaware that it's a werewolf and then they go through this process of changing and discovering you know that they're you know whatever that, that they're werewolf or whatever and then but then at that point on like and so it's always the same it's like we see their body change in very predictable ways and they're shocked by it but we're not because we've seen this over a million times and then you know nobody believes them that this is real now i'm now as i'm describing this out loud this sounds like a trans narrative and i maybe so maybe i love werewolf movies now i don't know but um but anyway then they they get killed one way or another and so it's this kind of tragic ending and then people are like oh shit werewolves are weird real um but i just don't i don't know i don't like them because it's they're not really scary and they're not they're kind of sympathetic but i don't know it just it never they never really explore how fucking awesome it would be to turn into a werewolf once a month <laughs> i feel i feel like that's something to be to be probed as it were and also it's like clearly kind of male anxieties about women's menstruation in some ways this kind of like what the full moon is out once a month you know blah 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 and like oh what if this were to happen to a man you know and so like but they never really probe the gender you know kind of possibilities of that they're very the werewolf is always super butch and and there are there are one or two kind of lady werewolf movies but you know it, it still feels very much in that kind of hetero normative Huh. and i feel as Wait, if when they get bit so it's a werewolf bites a person right yes and is it a male or female werewolf it's usually a male okay okay so there is a homoerotic reading there and much like the vampire it's like transferred through the bite hmm. but in the vampire i find much more interesting because like they can be scary they can be sexy and they're always bisexual and there's this you know whatever yeah. mixture of like sex and violence and whatever whereas the biting of the werewolf is always kind of a a visceral bestial rape basically it's never yeah. never kind of more i don't know i'm sure somebody's gonna write in and be like well actually you forgot this werewolf movie <laughs> i look forward to that because i would go watch it but anyway i would i would argue it is the least interesting like horror monster and plot and um Anyway, my God, we have to edit this out. This is the most embarrassed I've ever been on the podcast. I feel so exposed. <laughs> Are you serious? This is fantastic. I do have the Wolfman tattooed on me, though, in my horror sleeve. Um, but he's facing away from the viewer. And so you just see his little tail peeking out of his pants. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, anyway. Wow, oh, really, God, help me. Like, we're really we're really digging deep and getting the real Tegan once we get into 
werewolf conversation. And I've got to say, you you had me at homoerotic. That turned out to be more interesting than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> can I? Can we quickly like? What do you not like about a? Do you have a, a an opening thought on why you don't like um, non kind of non realism? I I don't. I think it's probably a lack of creativity and imagination. <laughs> did you ever, as a kid, did you like? I don't know, Wizard of Oz, fairies. Uh... Did not like Wizard of Oz. I read A Wrinkle in Time, and I liked that. And I think that was about the extent of it. Wow! So you were just always reading like Charles Dickens, Bleak House, like out the gate. <laughs> um. I don't know. I, I think that this is going to take more thought on my part. This is going to be a hard question to answer. Okay. And, and I don't want to put you on the spot. As the office gets increasingly zany, mm. if that does indeed happen, as I feel like tends to happen over the course of shows that run for a lot of seasons, um, definitely happened with Seinfeld, for example. Yeah. I will continue to reflect on this and see if I can illuminate it. It'll be interesting, like, what is the limit that they push? in terms mm-hmm. of realism and uh, yeah. um, believability. But uh, I'm trying to think anything else in the vampire plot I wanted to say. Oh, I would probably be Meredith in the situation, actually. Like her <laughs> hiding and then getting sort of accidentally <laughs> trapped and bitten. Uh, just amazing. Um, great <laughs> performance. Uh, Top notch. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. yeah. Well. Shall we go to the college? Why don't we get Pam's plot out of the way? Okay, <laughs> let's get Pam. Because really... I actually don't have much to say about that. Focus on the college. Okay, okay, let's talk about Pam. Um, question number one, what did you think about her outfits at work where today she is wearing a little bit of a different color palette, less pastel, more gray? It's this sort of nice gray colored sweater. I already gave away some of what I was thinking. I really liked her sweater. Um, And a shirt, sweater's a little bit buttoned up. But then at her art show, she is wearing a purple turtleneck with the kind of sleeves where they have thumb holes so they can really go down over your hands and a black kind of a jumper, I guess you'd call it. Kind of like an overall dress thing. What did you make of these outfits and the wardrobe change when Pam goes out at night? I wish I paid closer attention. I feel I feel guilty here. I will say that, uh, I mean, my colorblindness makes this part of the podcast tough because I never really get the colors right. Um, and I recently did a colorblindness like test with some people that are not colorblind to sort of see. Uh, and they were like, oh, yeah, no, you're really colorblind. Like, you're really missing yeah. a lot. And, and anyway, so... Uh, so it all look kind of, it always looks kind of drab to me, but I didn't notice too much of her office attire, but I did pay attention to the art show attire and I kind of liked it. I thought it was a nice look. And if I'm recalling, she at one point kind of puts the sleeves down over her hands. And I thought that was an excellent, like way to communicate her feelings and what what Pam would be feeling in the moment without necessarily dialogue being like, I feel sheepish, I feel rejected, I feel vulnerable, I'm insecure, you know, I feel, you know, all those things. Like, I just, I I feel like I've done that or I've seen other people do it. It feels like a thing. Anyway. Uh, yes. So I, I liked, I liked that outfit and then how she wore it. That putting her hands into it was so... 
it felt like a perfect example of show don't tell like they just did such a good job with that I agree that captured so much it's interesting she gets a little more I just sent you a picture of her outfit in the office and when she goes to the art show she gets maybe a little more edgy but still not very edgy she has colors that are really saturated for the first time like it's a deep purple and it's black and Pam never wears black she doesn't wear very saturated colors you know she wears a lot of pastels it's all kind of mild she also now has her hair more flattened like kind of more straightened not as tight of a curl but a loose curl I guess and a low side ponytail and uh, so it was just an interesting change and to see a different dimension of Pam that comes out in the art world. I'm glad you said this. Wait, so is she wearing in this like a, a jacket? Or it's a, a sweater. So it's still a cardigan. Okay. And the, yeah, oh, so this is her, her daytime attire, still a cardigan, still uh, an up shirt, but our colors are just a little different and a little yeah. more interesting, I thought. Well, it, she's at this really interesting moment where she's gone back with what's his face, Roy. And um, she says it shows maturity and dignity and then asks, is that braggy? Um, which reminded me of that episode where she says, she calls the um, Carol, is it? At the at, at Diwali, she's like, at least I oh, yes. like a slutty <laughs> cheerleader. And then she's yeah. like, is that mean or something? And so it, it just reminded me of how she wants to assert herself, but then instantly kind of recoils and seeks the assurance or, or approval of the audience or the interlocutor, the people who are recording her. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh you know, which is anyway, I thought that was good writing. I I kind of hate that they're back together. And I guess the show wants us to hate that they're back together in some way. Um, so I was curious what you thought about that. Hated it. Roy has completely plummeted yep. in my esteem. And last time we were talking about how we loved Roy in the last episode, and it just shows something interesting about insecurity and about vulnerability, because When Dwight was in that more insecure position of not having Pam, he was kind of wonderful. But now that he's secure and he's confident, he's overconfident and he's awful and he's just a jerk. And it seems like for Roy, being insecure to some extent is the key to trying. feels like if Roy has any confidence or any security, he just stops trying completely. And fascinating. I think that this, I think that this example of Roy, I think a study of Roy might unlock for us the idea of a sexual orientation toward insecurity. Uh, Oh shit, we've got to unpack that. you coined early in the podcast. I do think we share that, uh, that orientation uh, to a degree, or we have at various times, but yeah. Oh, that's so interesting that basically stability and security would lead him to um what uh become complacent right and and what he he's like isn't it awesome that your coworkers didn't show up like because that implies that he's so great but he can't see no that would be really hurtful for her like yes it's good that you show up but it's not just about you like he's so selfish he's so self-centered but also kind of lazy um 
yeah. Uh, I have to pause for a minute because my carbon monoxide detector is going off for the second time today. Oh, shit. <laughs> Let me go just check this. Yeah, please. You can pause the recording. I'll be back in a minute. <laughs> okay, we're back. Carbon monoxide problem taken care of, sort of. And it is already the next day. It's, uh, yeah, we're in the morning. Uh, this is office hours with coffee. <laughs> yeah. So let's get back into it. Yeah. Where were we, Tegan? Oh, we were talking about how Roy, uh, like, you know, has plummeted in our estimation in this episode. Uh, that the more we were kind of talking about the more secure he gets, the less he tries and that and and I would think I was saying that he's kind of being a little narcissistic or just not thoughtful when he's saying isn't it awesome your coworkers didn't show up but I don't know if we got to talk about whether he's hot or not which is always the most important question I felt not hot this episode not hot his entire vibe completely is affected by his attitude like his his attitude and the way he acts the way he treats pam affects his entire look i feel like it infuses him physically and so in conclusion roy in this episode is the worst yeah he sucks but there are some close runners up i mean okay so pam's having the art show and a few things we'll have to talk about we have to talk about the art we got to talk about michael coming we have toby who's got uh a kid thing to go to and i was there was a part of me was wondering if that's true or if he was coming up with an excuse but it seems to be true and the line of the kids, the, what the kids do is not art is really 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 funny i thought yes um, i feel like he's the only person aside from michael who genuinely wants to come yeah and so but it's not really because of the art and supporting the arts it's really because of pam but yeah i i really believed that he had the he had his kid thing and was not happy about it. And what's uh, uh, Kelly says, um, her reaction is amazing. like, oh, yeah, I'll be there. And I, I felt like what was so fun about this leading up to the art show was kind of the I, I don't know. I just feel I've been on both sides of this. Like I've been on the, on the side of Kelly being invited to something and I just don't really want to go like or I'm not going to I know I'm not going to go. Yeah. But I'm saying I might go, you know, or whatever. And uh, I feel bad about it. But like, you know, it just happens sometimes. And then I've also been Pam in this situation being like, hey, like this thing's exciting to me. You know, I'd love for you to come. And you just know when people say like, oh, I'll really try to make it. You're like, OK, yeah, all right. You that's, know. A no. <laughs> <laughs> that's a no. And and like, yeah, I don't know. It's like diminished. It's not like traumatic or whatever, you know, but uh, I thought the episode did a good job of showing kind of how awkward it can be with coworkers. Uh -huh. It's kind of different with your, like, I'm throwing a party for friends. Like when it's coworkers, there's this, are we friends? Do we hang out after work kind of thing? I thought that was yeah. kind of funny. Yeah, totally. And then there is Gil. Oh, Gil. <laughs> You're right. There are people who are competing for the position of the worst character in this episode. Yeah. Tell me your thoughts on Oscar and Gil. They so, just more culture. More culture. It's interesting, too, that the gay guys are the ones who are who kind of are framed as the people who measure culture. Yes. Or at least they think they think seem to think of themselves that way or they talk in that way. Um, 
So we've got Oscar and Gil, they show up at the art show and there's been nobody there at this point and it's been sad, right? So we've had shots of Pam looking lonely. We see other people looking at the other art. I can't remember, is this before or after the woman comes and talks to her? I think it's after. After, It looks and Pam says, the series is called Impressions, not that I think of myself as an impressionist. So it's been sad. Oscar and Gil show up they're talking. Oscar says, they're looking at the paintings and Oscar says, you're the one who said we needed more culture. Gil, this is culture to you? Oscar, it's your first try. Gil, yeah, on Van Gogh's first try, he drew the hands of the peasants. Oscar, meaning what? Gil, meaning real art takes courage, okay? And honesty. Oscar, well, those aren't exactly Pam's strong points. Gil, yeah, exactly. That's why this is motel art and oh my lord pam walks up behind them she's stepped away she walks up behind them in this conversation and it is heartbreaking heartbreaking why why did it break your heart what, what were your thoughts reactions talk talk me through oh it just it just felt like she's you know in overhearing them she's getting this straightforward evaluation of how bad the art is and calling it motel art feels like such a good insult yes (laughs) such a good insult but you know pam like she's she's taking she's also not a professional artist at this point she's taking a class she's trying something she's putting herself out there she's doing something for herself that's different than she didn't do when she was with roy roy was kind of discouraging of her potentially going to art school and taking classes and that kind of thing. And so it just, it it felt like, yeah, she's, she's putting herself out there. She's trying to share this thing that's important to her. And, oh, this just makes me so sad. I'm glad you said, uh, or the way you, the way you phrase it reminded me that, yeah, she's a student and this is a student art show. And, um, First, having I've been to a, a bunch of art shows partly because not like I don't mean that as a humble brag, although I'm very, very cultured. But uh, more specifically, I've been to a lot of kind of student art shows, uh, to be clear, because um, like we have a really cool art gallery on our campus um, that I really like and they show student work. But also my partner, Jen, is an artist. And, you know, when I met when we met each other. She was finishing up, um, or well, not finish. She was starting uh, an MFA program in fine art, and so anyway, the first thing, the first rule of going to student art shows is you do not fucking talk about the art at the show. You don't say anything negative because you do not know who the artist is. You don't know who's standing around. But even if you do know the artist, you don't know if their parents are there. Like you don't know what. Anyway, so that's that's it, it's a cruel venue to be critical um and and then secondly yeah you're so right it's not a i mean i i think i slipped right into gill's point of view where i was like well that stapler isn't great you know but i just love what you're saying like she is putting herself out there and she is trying to uh, you know nurture her uh creativity and her desire um and so it's it's mean you know to sort of say there is no courage here. Like maybe the art, it's the subject of the art, but even that it's like, it's a very standard student art thing to do landscapes and still lifes. So, um, 
but I have to say the reason I well first Gil Gil's kind of bitchy gay vibe yeah it's, it, you know it's kind of interesting like just the cultural representation of gay men is like bitchy and I a friend of mine was teaching a class and said like what are the what's the what characteristics would you use to describe gay men or like what do you think are like the primary characteristics and people said narcissism <laughs> and oh. I thought a lot about like and then another was kind of like bitchiness or something like that and I thought how interesting that was that those are the kind of like the, in some context presented as amusing and funny and and performative and in other contexts kind of cruel and you know like somehow the the person you know the queer people that are marginalized suddenly become the super ego of the whole culture in some way like I don't want to disappoint the the gay guy who has great taste or anyway whatever yes actually it's like they're the worst couple who could come to disappoint like it would be less yeah. <laughs> like I think you'd have less investment in say Phyllis and Bob Vance yes yeah yeah but then it's also perceptive and that's what's tough not so much the guilt yeah. but Oscar's read yeah what did you make of what Oscar's saying you know that basically it's not her strong suits courage and is it courage and honesty courage and honesty yeah yeah. Hmm. Well, I guess there are things that Pam is now trying to show or, or trying to take more of. I think there are things that when she's with Roy, and I guess she's back with him now, um, but have gone away. Um, like she has not tended to be very courageous or very honest. I guess we see this with the relationship with Pam. So I guess he's, I guess he's not wrong. And maybe the way on the one hand, this is so hurtful. Those aren't Pam's strong points. But at the same time, we all have strong points and weak points. And so it's not saying that she's entirely terrible. It's just, this isn't necessarily her thing. I don't know. Is he right? Is he wrong? And I want to hear more of your defense of Gil too. Are <laughs> you were like, yeah, Gil's right? Oh, eh, oh, about the art or about her self? Uh, Either. Either. Yeah. Well, I don't think he's right about the subject of the art. Mm -hmm. Like his going to Van Gogh is such a weird. I mean, even that, I'm like, bro, you're the pedestrian middlebrow person that you know. The artist you think of is Van Gogh. You know, like. <laughs> you know update your references yeah <laughs> also you know van gogh is doing whatever doesn't matter uh no i i i don't have a defensive gill i don't think just that um i guess the reason they would say that she lacks courage and honesty is because she's back with roy mm -hmm. she's trying to frame it as mature and dignified but she's kind of lying to herself and everybody That's knows it she knows it she's retreating to what's familiar and safe, which is not courageous. And Good everybody presume, I don't know if everybody in the office knows or not that she and Jim are, you know, a, a potential thing, mm -hmm. but even so kind of being with Roy in general and then waiting so long for the engagement and not, you know, I don't know. Yeah. However, is Oscar a portrait of courage and honesty? <laughs> like, I don't, you know, obvious, I mean, it's very different, right? To like come out as gay at work and to, you know, deal with a, like a kind of 
crappy fiance or something, but but still, you know, I, I don't know. I don't really picture any of the people in this office as like courageous or honest. So uh-huh. <laughs> although I guess Michael Scott is honest in his own way. <laughs> yeah. And he is courageous in his own way as well. I love, okay, so he comes, he shows up, and it is one of the sweetest I, scenes. I got one more. I got one more oh, thing, though. Sorry, Oscar, sorry. Uh, Oscar and Gil, but then, yeah, we've got to talk about the Michael Scott. Okay. So I kind of have, uh, I'll say it first, I kind of agreed maybe with Gil. I was like, this was a real, this is really, really mean. But at the same time, maybe he is right about this art. And at the same time, though, then I thought about it a little bit more. And I thought, what does art do? And what should art do? And so when he says, he talks about, he goes to Van Gogh. But I think that one of the big things art can do, and I think we could say Van Gogh did this, is to elevate the ordinary, you know, like the lowly and the working and the laborer, the things that don't seem worthy of art. And I think actually, so I think we see that in the idea of a peasant, but Pam, is she not doing that in painting a stapler, in painting this very ordinary, very boring office video or office, sorry, office building. So she's giving significance to daily objects and places that are a part of her life and a part of many other people's lives. And in that, I think infusing them with value in some way that's certainly not being seen, but I don't know. Was Van Gogh totally celebrated on his first attempt? Doubtful, but also fuck me, Megan, that is so smart. I don't, Oh my God. I didn't even see it. Like it's so you're so right on because you not see it because it's not there. That's no, I, well, no, it's right there. Right. He's saying as you, yeah, like labor is the uh, labor is a proper, you know, uh, subject for art or whatever. I mean, I think I don't know much about Van Gogh painting the peasant's hands or whatever. So, you know, but presumably, you know, he's saying it's brave and courageous because it's new. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know whatever maybe pam's is not like new in the modernist sense of it but you're definitely right it is it is giving it is illuminating the everyday life of of like wage workers in yeah. in like kind of a, a not rural america but you know the the suburbs or something like that yeah. so yeah. no i think you're right and i think that the episode kind of validates that by having Michael appreciate it to and see himself in it and his whole message in this episode is people don't go out of business labor is actually important I mean I think like 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 he's not a fucking Marxist and one could argue you know the whole episode is a, a kind of a you know reifying and and mystifying of the boss and the company and and you know erasing the exploitation but nonetheless it is really interesting that he sees the building and says it's inspiration and a source of beauty um huh. and uh anyway it seems to me that there's like some interesting potential there so yeah, yeah I'm, like, I'm just riffing on what you said we're so smart i love that um i love that so should we talk about the encounter then of michael when he arrives at the art show yeah 
So he comes. Oh, do you want to read it into the record? Should we do a reading? Oh, let's do this. Okay. <laughs> do you want to be Pam and I'll be Michael? Yes, please. Um, okay. I'll start at Pam Casso. <laughs> okay. I am queued up. Okay. Pam Casso. Sorry I'm late. I had to race across town. Oh, Michael. Wow. You did these freehand? Yep. My God, these could be tracings. Oh, look at this one. Wow, you nailed it. Huh. How much? What do you, what do you mean? I don't see a price. Um, you want to buy it? Yeah, well, yeah, we have to have it for the office. I mean, there's my window and there's my car. That your car? Uh-huh. That is our building. And we sell paper. I am really proud of you. Thank you. This is where Pam starts hugging Michael. She closes her eyes and then opens them and gets a look. She's get she's feeling something and she's getting concerned. So Michael says, what? Do you have something in your pocket? Chunky, <laughs> do you want half? No, thank you. Okay. This <laughs> pulls a chunky candy bar out of his pocket. <laughs> Which is a great, that's so great. It's so great because you're like, oh, Michael, don't, don't be <laughs> don't get inappropriate. Excited. Don't ruin this moment, you know? And he has had moments where he's tried to make a move on her, right? Like in Diwali. So oh, yeah. <laughs> there is a potential of him. I mean, and he often ruins sweet moments, so... I thought that was a brilliant way of puncturing the sentimentality without undermining it. Yeah. You know, but without kind of flipping the script completely. Yeah. I love that he says that I'm so proud of you. And um, I was texting with, I think it was Corey um, when I came out uh, as trans and she was saying something like, I'm so proud of you or whatever. And, uh, and then she was saying kind of, like hating how that sounds parental you know mm -hmm. like and sort of saying like we should detach that phrase like i'm so proud of you from the kind of parent child yeah. um, uh, relation that it often presumes mm -hmm. and uh so I, I was thinking about that actually as i watched this because this is a kind of surrogate parental moment i suppose yeah. um not necessarily it doesn't have to be read as fatherly it can be and in in fact more often than not it feels like pam is kind of being maternal to michael as a child <laughs> so either way there's i just found it really powerful that he expresses pride and that she receives it and is nourished by that yeah yeah she so needs it in that moment michael too the thing the the chunky in his pocket he seems so innocent in that like it doesn't even cross his mind he doesn't seem to quite register what she is thinking so sweet how he calls her pam casso when he comes in i thought that was really really cute and we can just see the like that that idea of the the ordinary and the value for the ordinary and the art like michael has also felt so um undercut I guess and kind of worn down by the day and by being devalued at business school like Pam has been feeling devalued by people's comments on her art 
And so for him, seeing this, seeing this office elevated to art is really meaningful for him. So I also just thought this was a really powerful scene in the way that they're both getting, you use the word nourishing, that was a really good word for it. They're both getting something that they profoundly needed. And it's just very touching. It's, it's some office at its best. I think it's an interesting contrast to Roy's reaction because Roy does say effectively, I'm proud of you. Mm-hmm. Um, although not those words, but what he basically says is something like your art is the best art of all the art. And yeah. I think it's the prettiest art, isn't oh, that? Pretty, yeah. Oh boy. Uh, and I think I was thinking about that because there are times when people are praising you, but it doesn't feel good or it doesn't register. And yeah. I was trying to think why this doesn't, why his praise doesn't register for her. I think part of it is, you know, his kind of undermining or, you know, pointing out that other people didn't show up and that's hurtful to her. So it doesn't, you know, it, whatever it's, he's aggrandizing himself rather than centering her. But I also think it might be because he doesn't have, he doesn't connect to the art in the way that Michael does. Like Michael sees it and yeah, finds some way to relate to it. And I, it is a very identificatory <laughs> relationship. <laughs> it's like, that's my car. This is where we work, you know, yeah. um, but nonetheless, it's, it's an appreciation that's specific. Whereas Roy's is just kind of yeah. Uh, abstract yeah. or abstract. And so it doesn't really mean much. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Cause yeah, Roy's is so generic. I like that the way you put that about Michael sees it and he does. Well, well so she, yeah. I was gonna say on the on the note of Michael, do we need to go to business school? Let's do this. <laughs> so Michael, this is interesting. You're always into the cold opens, and this is the one of the rare cases where it's not at all separate from the episode. It's just launching right into it. Uh Michael. <laughs> is saying that today's a special day because I'm being honored as a visiting professor, special lecturer, emeritus. How did you, how did you, and then Ryan jumps in and says, you will be a guest speaker in my emerging enterprises class. <laughs> uh, oh my God. Yeah. I, I, I was a little bummed by this cold open just cause yeah, we don't get a really, we don't get a great joke. We get, mm-hmm. Ryan being like, I'd be crazy not to do it, right? I think that's maybe where it ends. I can't remember. But uh, yeah, it just kind of launches in. But I did enjoy Kevin coming in and trying to be like, oh, I almost died. And Michael's like, "Not that's not important, you know? And yeah. something I noticed for the first time I want to go back to at some point, maybe in Revisions and Regrets, is there's a huge painting between Michael and Kevin at the opening of the episode that I hadn't really noticed before. And I wondered if it had always been there. And if so, what is that painting? It's a landscape. I was like, where is that landscape? But if it's new and they were centering it, it felt appropriate because the end of the episode arrives at them putting more art on the walls. Um, So that was the best that kind of a connection I could make to the rest of the episode. Um, But Ryan says that by bringing Michael, his teacher will give him a full letter grade of extra credit. What are your thoughts on that policy? I think the professor is 
making a move here where he ends up having to spend a lot less time teaching. If he incentivizes students that highly, that what they do is just bring in their boss, the boss takes over, takes the entire class. It means that the professor doesn't have to prepare and doesn't have to really do anything. This might have backfired. I enjoyed watching this professor throughout Michael's presentation. Just his face, his bafflement, how I can just sort of imagine him in his head trying to figure out and decide, like, do I intervene? And if so, when? And what do I do? And what do I make of this? Would right. you give people a full letter grade for this? Oof. Uh, no. Uh, no. <laughs> I don't know. I I don't know. No. <laughs> I'd expect some, <laughs> I'd expect some uh, component, you know, written essay or something, maybe. But yeah. like, I don't I find extra credit really frustrating. Like I give it because I'm able to incentivize students to go to campus events and things like that. Um, but I never quite know how, what to ask, you know, so I give very low like points for it. So I'm never sure. Anyway, I don't know if it does the work that it does, but then in other cases, I'm giving extra credit because I'm like, oh man, like everybody bombed X uh -huh. <laughs> so I need to give them a little nudge up or something. And so, but a full letter grade just seems crazy. And yeah. Ryan, I don't know if Ryan deserves it uh, just from his vibe. Ryan does not deserve it. I'm sorry, but Ryan is such a little bitch in this episode. Interesting. Well, you don't hate him. Uh, I'm not sure how I feel yet. I oh, mean, he's so mean. He's meaner than Gil and Oscar are. I think. Wow. Okay. All right. I mean, to be fair, I did. You know, Gil and Oscar don't know that Pam is listening, and whereas I kept asking myself, does would Ryan have given the same introduction if Michael had chosen to be in the room, like for the introduction? And I kind of think he might have, because uh, it seemed prepared. It did and seem prepared. In that way, that argument about Ryan that seems is so cruel. That seems very cruel. Cruel and cruel and unnecessary, and. Yeah, what is he saying in his his little speech? It's something like, you know, they they can't keep up with changes in the market, and the management fails or refuses to acknowledge it or address it, something like that. So he just sets him up by embarrassing him, mm. and he could just tell them more neutrally about the company and what the company does, yeah. but it seems like he's sort of trying to prop himself up and his smartness by tearing somebody else down. At least Roy and Gil aren't like, there's no, they don't think that people are seeing them. So they don't seem to be critiquing the art in order to prop themselves up, but it feels like Ryan is. Yeah, no, I think that's totally right. Um, there, there was an interesting moment, by the way, when on the drive there, uh, Michael calls um, Ryan spazzy boy. And, uh -huh. spaz, um, and so uh, I was like, oh, man, I haven't heard that word in a long time. Um, and I know we now kind of think of it as a as a pejorative or a, a, an offensive word. So I just thought it'd be interesting to kind of read into the record the um, Wikipedia entry about the word spastic. Um, 
so it says in medicine the adjective spastic refers to an alteration in muscle tone affected by the medical condition spasticity which is a well-known symptomatic phenomenon seen in patients with a wide range of central neurological disorders including spinal cord injury cerebral palsy uh stroke um, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis oh als and multiple sclerosis as well as conditions such as quote spastic colon the word is derived via latin from the greek spastikos meaning drawing in tugging or shaking uncontrollably uncontrollably uh, the noun originally medical term is now a pejorative though severity of this differs between the united states and the united kingdom disabled people in the united kingdom often consider consider spastic to be one of the most offensive terms related to disability um oh interesting and in American slang, the term spaz evolved from a derogatory description of people with disabilities and is generally understood as a casual word for clumsiness, otherness, sometimes associated with overexcitability, excessive startle response, excessive energy, involuntary or random movement, or hyperactivity, because these are associated with cerebral palsy and, and similar things. So, um, yeah, I was kind of wondering what you made of Michael's, like, recourse to that term. Because yeah. it seems interesting, just given the fact that Ryan actually seems more placid and and yeah, uh, like I don't know, frozen in some ways. Yeah, that is a good point, and yeah, it just it feels I don't know. Is he just reaching for something? Because yeah, it do it doesn't feel like it's even the way that people tended to use it in that slang derogatory sense so i agree it's an odd it's an odd choice um as he's packing up also we have him his books i was wondering if you noticed the books he's uh bringing with him he puts in a donald trump book <laughs> yeah i had never heard of this one it's called like, think like a billionaire oh my gosh <laughs> It's so funny how much to, to try to think about what what Donald Trump meant then and what he means now. <laughs> and they are very different things. But to have him just be a titan of industry at that point. Yeah, I love this point about, uh, you know, kind of the representation of Trump pre-president. Uh, and I keep forgetting also that on the one hand, Michael Scott is a George Bush uh, analog in some ways. We're still in 2007. It's the Bush years. Bush is kind of, you know, uh, represented as a bit of a bumbling, you know, uh, but basically well-intentioned uh, doofus or something. And and uh, and obviously that's a that's propaganda, but that is kind of the way the country I think thought about George Bush. But at the same time, Michael also idolizes Trump. So it's we got to keep coming back to like how Michael Scott lays the groundwork for a future president trump uh and what is it about? <laughs> no no I, I, not blaming this on i'm Michael. sorry megan it's happening no no okay let me just read in the record if i may the back like the the back cover the copy oh, for do, yeah. think like a billionaire here we go it's not good enough to want it you've got to know how to get it Real estate titan, best-selling author, and TV star Donald J. Trump is the man to teach you the billionaire mindset. 
how to think about money, career skills, and life. Here is crucial advice on investing in real estate from the expert. Trump covers everything from dealing with brokers to renovating, from assessing the value of property to buying and selling and securing a mortgage. Trump will show you how to cut costs, decide how much risk to assume in your investments, and balance your portfolio. He'll also teach you to impress anyone, correct or criticize someone effectively, and know if your friends are loyal. Everything you need to get ahead. And what look inside the Trump world, sorry, whew, and what look inside the Trump world would be complete without The Apprentice? Trump will take you behind the scenes from the end of season one and into season two with insights into the making and the meaning of TV's hottest show. As Donald Trump proves, getting rich is easy. Staying rich is harder. Your chances are better and you'll have more fun if you think like a billionaire. Oh, Lord. Well, I'm so glad that you I'm so glad that you brought that to us. Well, are you inspired? Are you going to read this book? <laughs> um let me just say as 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 Megan often says, this is one of my favorite meganisms. It's a rich text. <laughs> So I don't know that I need to buy the book. Just the back cover alone is enough to satisfy my, I don't think I'm going to buy that book because yeah, it's like the way to think like a billionaire, it, getting rich is easy. It's like daddy gave you like $3 million. So what do you even inherited a real estate business? Like, yeah, yeah. That's when you inherit it. It's a really good way to go. <laughs> but uh, you yeah, I feel like the part of that that Trump like insisted on was the learn how to criticize people and know if your friends are loyal. That feels like his contribution. Yes, yes. That book, I'll say it covers a lot of ground. Yeah. I will also say I wonder who the ghostwriter was on that because I don't really see Donald Trump actually sitting down to write a book or multiple books, however many he has out. Another thing about Trump is I feel like the reputation for him as a businessman in New York was that he had a lot of money, but was also kind of an outsider because he's kind of tacky. Like right. he wasn't good at being wealthy in the old money kind of way. That's right. So there's something that resonates with Michael Scott in that way and being kind of an outsider in the business world, even though, of course, he's the ultimate insider. I mean, he became the president. So I don't mean to, I don't mean to support his sense of being aggrieved or whatever. But, you know, the the vibe was a tacky New York money guy. The other thing, though, Michael has drawn clear distinctions between himself and Trump, which I might argue is a sign of Michael's capacity to think critically, where he can both own the book, but also he has made clear before that his big disagreement with Donald Trump is that he fires people. And actually, he comes back to that. So he had before said in an interview at some point that he doesn't agree with Donald Trump because a good manager doesn't fire people. He doesn't want to say you're fired. He wants to say you're hired. And now at the end of this episode, he says to Ryan, a good manager doesn't fire people. A good manager, he hires people and inspires people people, Ryan, and people will never go out of business. So I think he has a contentious relationship with Trump. As we all do. Uh, <laughs> I really, I love this reading. I love your redemptive reading of Michael Scott. And I agree. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I, 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 for that. I think you're right. And I think 
I, I, I do think it would it will be fun to kind of keep this the Trumpiness in mind because I think you're persuading me that Michael Scott is a as a character is kind of in conversation with the representation of bosses and um, kind of corporate overlords and managers and whatever. And Trump is arguably in that moment in 2007, like kind of one of the most iconic, you know, because of The Apprentice, which really did catapult the narrative that he would like us to believe. Um, So yeah, it's actually really, not only is Michael Scott critical of it, it might be that the show is kind of having this conversation with and trying to push back on a certain narrative of American capitalism or American management or something, whether it does that, you know, by just sentimentalizing when Michael says people will never go out of business. I mean, it's like, that is what um, companies are always trying to do. Like they're trying to cut costs of labor to increase their um, profit shares and portfolios. And then I, I was thinking about, fuck me, like AI is basically like people will go out of business, like um, because people are more expensive than machines and whatnot. But I, but I think, I think you're right. I think the show is, is pushing back on that kind of capitalism reduces people to, um, things that can be bought and sold and Michael Scott is saying no like that it it shouldn't necessarily be that way I suppose um, he says a good manager hires and inspires people and then praises Pam's art for being inspirational so if Trump's book is called the art of the deal perhaps Michael Scott's is the art of uh, the feel Ooh, I love it. It is the art of the feel. And that sounds, there's a dirty reading of that. That's what she said. (laughs) Hey, you know what, Megan? That's what I said. (laughs) That is what you said. (laughs) Really is the crux of the crux of the issue here with you. (laughs) Okay, Deegan, I gotta say, this point you're making about the pushback this is what I wanted to try to persuade you of today. <laughs> really? When we began, so you've already arrived there on your own. Um, <laughs> I think, but <laughs> this is like my transition too. It's like, <laughs> you know, other people knew, but it took me time. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> well, a lot of a lot of things are coming together today in this episode. But let me say this: you started out when we began this office journey. You started out thinking that this show was going to be some kind of capitalist propaganda and that it was trying to persuade viewers of the goodness of corporate America. And you were a little worried about that, a little wary. But what Michael Scott is doing is railing against the principles of business school that tell him to prioritize markets and profits and competition. So I think that pushback you're pointing to is really, really important And I'm thinking about the moment when he says that you can sell thingamajigs or whoozy what's it's or whatchamacallits. And this will have to get us into his teaching techniques. (laughs) Yeah. But he means like the product itself doesn't matter. Like you're saying, it's the people business. So through Michael Scott, I would say the show is envisioning an alternative to the kind of brutal capitalism that does just prioritize profits and markets and it might not be a revolution that overthrows the entire system but it does try to carve out space i think for a different mode of living and working where if paper is 
going out of business, if we're going toward a paperless world, the point is not about paper and it's not about the market, but it is about the office and about people having their jobs and keeping their jobs. And that really is his priority. I mean, now I feel it's like important for me to like, cause either I've changed my point of view or the propaganda of the show has worked. And no. <laughs> and well, I've, worked, what message have you come away with? Uh, have you that, decided is business school? Are these, Oh, we've got to talk about these students, but are these people in business school? Right. Oh God. No, no. And can we just start business school? I don't know. It's a scam. Talk about the scammiest of scams. It's like a business degree. Like is and undergrad business school, or is this an MBA that they're going for? That's a great question. I think it's an MBA. So they maybe look a little older. So yeah. Yeah. It seemed like grad school, I suppose. But but either way, yeah. If if you're thinking about an undergraduate business major, please don't. Uh and also some other majors to avoid psychology. Like just because you major in psychology, you will not be on criminal minds. Like you're not doing law and order, you know, SVU or whatever. Like uh, it just drives me crazy. These certain majors that get sold to undergrad, you know, and it makes sense, right? Like I want to run a business. I'll major in business, like major in economics. Like if that's really what you want to accomplish, you know, mm -hmm. but whatever. Um, so no, I'm not on the side of the business school people. I just am somewhat wary of of saying that Michael Scott has has a a coherent philosophy, <laughs> especially because his saying "you can sell a who's he what's it" is set up to a candy bar joke. <laughs> um, but as I watched that, I was like, "Oh, Megan is gonna fucking love this because you love presentation skills." And I was like, "I, do. You know, I was like, if a student in your class was like, you know, use the hundred grand joke, you would be like, A plus." <laughs> but I just while we're still in this moment of the. Um, you know, or setting up some of Michael's teaching techniques, but also his business philosophy. I one of my favorite jokes in the whole episode, and this is also one of my favorite like genres of jokes, uh, is like I'm gonna give a list and I'm gonna say it's only gonna have four things, but then it's gonna continue or something <laughs> like that, or I'm gonna keep remaking the list. There's a classic SNL sketch uh with Steve Martin listing what he wants for Christmas that does that that I absolutely adore. Anyway, so he says, Shall we proceed? There are four kinds of business, tourism food service, railroads, and sales, and hospitals slash manufacturing, and air travel. <laughs> and at no point does he say, like, paper or whatever. <laughs> These things are also transportation-based. <laughs> Tourism, railroads, air travel. Air travel. Sales, just the others are more specific, like railroads and hospitals are pretty specific. Sales just encompasses like everything. <laughs> yeah, it's great. But in some ways, I was kind of like, yeah, like that is a mockery of like a business school. Like we're going to break down. Uh, I'm sure our business listeners are upset. <laughs> I was trying to think what four businesses I would say there are. And I, I don't know. <laughs> a great question i do want to think about that what would i say are the four kinds of business and clearly you know michael is is exposing himself for his limited amount of knowledge but i guess michael also proves you don't have to go to business school to be a successful boss one of my favorite jokes in this is when 
he and Ryan show up at the college and they're walking around. Yeah. And Michael says, campus brings back so many memories that I would have made. <laughs> and then he says, hey, Frisbee, check that out. Ah, oh, what do you say we get our frizz on before class? And he runs over and throws the Frisbee just way far away from the guys who are playing it. And he says, woo. And I, I really <laughs> thought this was an interesting idea. Memories that I would have made. What do we make, Tegan, out of this category of hypothetical memories? Is that Does that make sense as kind of a, a thing, hypothetical memories, like this nostalgia? Yeah, yeah never was absolutely i think well first i was thinking okay i i loved get our frizz on and i wrote in my notes his joyful shout uh mm -hmm. i just love that he like he shouts as he you know he's so there's something you know cringy about it because he's so happy and unencumbered but i also found that very charming um but yeah so on the one hand there is the specific like how does what does that line tell us about michael scott like what he would imagine his memories to be and then yeah. on the other hand about that line is kind of like how people imagine what something might have been that they missed out on is yeah. often mediated by our kind of cultural representation of that thing and yeah. so i always like to talk with students about like okay well what how did you know what college would be like before you went to college, you know? And so, of course, some of it is my parents said, oh, these will be the best years of your life, which is often a damaging narrative for many of them because they experience lots of difficulty and pain. And they're like, I should this I'm supposed to be enjoying this. Why am I not? It makes the, their depression or their confusion even worse. So there's that. But then there's also just like, you know whatever, Animal House, or uh, I'm trying to think, I don't know what cultural representations students would have now, but, you know, even the idea, even watching Harry Potter go off to boarding school or whatever is a narrative of like going to school and see and having X experiences. And so I was kind of thinking about that, like, what are some of our representations of the college experience? So being on the quad playing hacky sack, you know, is yeah. one. And then this kind of uh, vision of the inspirational teacher who, tears up the book and, you know, like undermines traditional conventional ways of learning and thereby inspires you, which is what Michael, so Michael is kind of trying to be the teacher that he never had, that he thinks he would have had. Yes. And in that way is like also the student, you know, having, giving himself the student experience by becoming, by being this role. I don't know. Yes. What did you think of? Yeah. So many memories I would have made. Oh, well, I just, I really love that idea about the cultural representations of what college is and how that, how much that shapes your expectation of what it'll be or what you didn't have. His woo, his joy and enthusiasm here is lovely. And it made me think back to your question about what's going on when he calls Ryan spazzy boy and your reading of the kind of history of that term and what it means. And there was some line that was about, you know, uncontrolled energy or something like that. And it seems like this is a moment of unbridled energy for Michael, where he's kind of breaking out of the kind of control that the body is expected to have in the way that he, as a quote, visiting professor on campus is supposed to behave. And um, 
so it seems like it seems like one of those things where he's he's trying to use this on Ryan, but it seems to fit his energy more. Yeah, that's true. But your thing about the cultural representations, I think, takes us to one of Michael's most dramatic scenes. And that is when he takes the textbook and starts tearing out the pieces. Megan, it's important that you understand you cannot learn from books. Oh, my God. Michael. I, when that line hit, I texted you immediately. I was like, you cannot learn from books, Michael Scott. And I just wanted to say, uh, when he tears out the book and then hands it back, and he's like kind of wrecking, he's like, it's classic Michael where he's like, I know those are expensive, but, uh, you know, the knowledge is price or the lesson is priceless. Yeah. And they cut to the guy's face and like props to that extra who mm -hmm. had no lines, but in his face has this kind of like puppy dog like bewildered like yeah. sh shock i don't know it was adorable and i really enjoyed his uh his reaction yes what did you make of yeah michael scott's uh his pedagogy let's call it what it is yeah yeah let's call it what it is so your your point i love the idea about the the role of cultural representations and it feels like this is just full of those so both as he walks down with his little boombox with classical music, like it's introducing a motivational speaker and it refers to, so he lets it go on a little too long because it's the music and then it references, and I am forgetting his name, Brandon Hidalgo. So then someone's voice comes in and is like, this is Brandon Hidalgo, um, CEO of the teaching company or something like that. <laughs> So he actually is the guy who was a, a top person in that company that does the great courses. You know, those, I think they were mostly on CDs and I yeah. think they probably have the digital version of them now, but where you can get and listen to courses that are taught by college professors. So it was just interesting taking that kind of mainstreaming of both what happens in college and the inspirational speaker, like giving himself music and kind of what he expects a college classes to be like and then doing the dead poet society yeah where that scene where in the dead poet society robin williams is a teacher at a like boys boarding school or something like that right yeah yeah and it seems like that's one of those scenes also that itself has become outside of the whole context of the movie you can forget the whole movie but this scene really lives on where he goes into the class and he tells, he opens up a big, thick poetry textbook. And he has one of the students start to read this account of how to read poetry, but it's really how to evaluate poetry. And it describes putting it on a graph where the x-axis is one thing and the y-axis is another thing. And you're supposed to be able to measure poetry. And he has them start tearing out the pages, tearing out that section. And so it feels like this is this big message, though, that then gets away from it. And so Michael's saying, and you had already read part of this, you cannot learn from books. Replace these pages with life lessons. And then you will have a book that is worth its weight in gold. And it did make me wonder, what has the Dead Poet Society done to our education system? Oh, it's bad. It's a bad thing that it's done. 
It's a I mean, it's there are a few things about the dead post. I mean, I think first it's like, you know, there's nothing to be taught. It's just to be felt or inspired, you know, like we don't have knowledge. Literature doesn't, you know, it's, it's about a kind of, yeah, just like a visceral spiritual conversion or something like that. You know, I don't know. Like I'm not, I, I don't, yeah, just setting it up that binary, right. Where it's like, you know, are we analyzing the poem and putting it on a, you know, a, a surgical table and and cutting it apart, or are we just feeling it, you know, and it feels like that binary is way too stark. Um, and then, yeah, the idea that you don't really need expertise or whatever, but none of that sort of bothers me as much as just the idea of like, what is a classroom experience supposed to be, you yeah. know, like, and who has authority and, you know, something I've always been aware of is like, yeah, I like have students call me by my first name. Like we sit in a circle, like, and a lot of this comes out of my, you know, experience as a women's gender sexuality studies student <laughs> and then teacher. Those are kind of more norms, but the idea behind it is this kind of like, we're trying to deauthorize the professor or the instructor as the kind of, I have all of the knowledge and I just like import it into your you know, mm -hmm. empty brain or something like that. And I, I really value that. Like I practice it. And at the same time, like, what does it mean for me, a person who, you know, still is read as uh, a man who is white, you know, um, and can pass as straight or whatever, like for me to kind of shuck off my quote unquote privilege or, or to performatively do so. And, uh, you know, others are not so capable of doing that and then being accepted by an audience or something. So I kind of like that Michael performs that kind of a uh, vibe in a way. And then, and, and the audience is not there for it. They're like, no, we want, we, we actually want to know, like, how does your company deal with this? Like, what are the, like, th they're more okay with the idea of a boring, what would seem to the normal public, a boring esoteric uh, conversation. You know, they don't need inspiration. They need, they want, uh, analysis and details and, and I don't know those are my what do you think that's interesting hmm well I thought this you're leading me to reconsider the students who I really despise as I what watch, especially you are drinking that Michael Scott Kool-Aid especially the guy with the short hair and the glasses and the corduroy jacket I think we went to grad school with that guy Oh, I am quite sure we did. <laughs> so pretentious. And I guess, I mean, one of the things that I don't believe about these students is how attentive they are. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that with their, so when he says something like real business is done on paper and they all start typing it into their laptops, which is of course the joke that none of them are using paper, but also in an actual class when they're all on their laptops, a very low percentage are taking notes about the um, class itself. I mean, this might be different for grad school. It might be different for business school. They, But they do seem to be go-getters. They do seem to be there to get a lot out of it. So you are encouraging me to give them a more generous read. I think, I don't know. I read them as benign. Like I read them as... Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think on the one hand, I could imagine this happening in class and you just like cackling and enjoying it. 
Um, and then on the other hand, I can also imagine a, a version of us as students or whatever being like, what the fuck, you know, like, because they're he's talking down to them in a way, um, mm -hmm. and sort of patronizing them. And uh, I don't know. So yeah, I read them as kind of, but I love that joke about them all clicking on their laptops. And it gave me shudders because that is our, the current problem I'm facing. And I'm really thinking about not letting students use devices in class this semester. And I'm really nervous how they react uh, because it is so like, it's the culture, you know? Um, but this episode is like, yeah, nobody's fucking paying attention. <laughs> so, but uh, I'm trying to remember, what are the questions they ask? What do you say to a customer who wants to leave you for the convenience and savings of a nationwide chain? Um, yeah, what did you make of? Isn't his, can you read his response too? I, I say you will miss our service and I absolutely guarantee you'll come back. Has anyone ever come back? We don't want them back because they're stupid. <laughs> How far has your Herfindahl index declined since the merger? Nice try. How's your Pollock says what index? What? Thanks, Kowalski. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm looking up the Herfindahl index, a common measure of market concentration determine to use to determine market competitiveness often pre and post merger and acquisition transactions snooze snooze yep michael just he he resists all of this he's he's refusing the premises of the business school in a lot of ways he yeah. you know, he's so excited and he's so proud before he goes but poor guy it's it just it ends up being embarrassing and i guess that this is a parallel with pam too how it ends up exposing how much stuff he doesn't know and it actually doesn't really matter because he does a fine job at dunder mifflin <laughs> i mean some might argue otherwise <laughs> but he does a pretty fine job. the sexual harassment yes <laughs> <laughs> in terms of sales <laughs> well, they don't care. This class is not about sexual harassment. This class is about business and making sales. And Michael knows how to make sales. Wait, what was this class again? Emerging enterprises. Emerging right. enterprises. It's interesting. I, I guess one might say that the paper business is a declining enterprise. Yeah, I was a little confused about that title. <laughs> so this is kind of a counter example. But Michael, he can't even he can't even speak their language he doesn't even right understand their language when yeah. <laughs> when that one guy so when michael says david will always be goliath and then the student that i hate the most says but there are five goliaths office max staples etc and then michael says yeah yeah you know what else is facing five goliaths america al-qaeda global warming sex predators mercury poisoning and so he very quickly runs out and struggles with the five goliaths america is facing and he has so do we just give up is that what we're learning in business school michael is michael is courageous <laughs> I think, I mean, well, first, what an interesting kind of moment where he's like laying out, yeah, America's foes. Uh, Megan, did you have thoughts on that list that he picked? Anything anything hit you about it? Well, he's got two of the really big global conversations, terrorism and global warming. 
But then he goes, it's interesting the different scales sort of of these things. So then it goes to sex predators. I don't know. I guess this connects to, to his story about the teacher. Um, yes. Oh, I forgot. Holy crap. You know what he said? So I guess, I don't know, maybe he's kind of got that on the mind. And then mercury poisoning, like this really random and small thing. So it goes from this like really big global to something, I guess that fear of sex predators is something that is, um, in terms of the way that it's imagined and thought about is more on the interpersonal and individual level. Not, not that it can't, not that that excludes sex trafficking or something that is more of a network like that, but just in terms of the way that it's thought of and referring to it as sex predators. So let me read in his description where he's starting out by talking about the cool teacher. And I think this is such a fascinating shift. He seems to have several things. So he's got that list of the four kinds of business. He's got the list of the Goliaths, but these things where it kind of starts out in one direction and then it falls apart in some ways over the course of this. So he says at the beginning of the episode, a boss is like a teacher and I am like the cool teacher, like Mr. Handel. Mr. Handel would hang out with us and he would tell us awesome jokes. And he actually hooked up with one of the students. Um, And then like 12 other kids came forward. It was in all the papers, really ruined eighth grade for us. (laughs) (laughs) The shift in tone that just <laughs> goes careening down a hill over the course of this. Yeah. Also, the fact that he starts by comparing himself to Mr. Handel as the cool teacher. And then is it that he's left with a sense of Mr. Handel being the cool teacher? And that's been really his memory. But then as he starts to talk about him, it comes back that, oh, actually, Mr. Handel was a little bit more complicated and this introduces questions about the cool teacher (laughs) yeah for sure yeah i was like how much insight does michael have in that moment as he's you know reflecting but yes uh, i don't know we had a teacher like that too when i was growing up in a in high school uh you know a teacher that people were like oh he's so cool he's so hot or whatever and then it's like slept with a student and you know um and uh I don't know. It was it, uh, anyway. It just is. It, it, I was like, that's a. I think a common story. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, I don't have anything to say about it other than uh, yeah. It is interesting that Michael wants to imagine himself as the cool. Uh, the fact that he wants to be a teacher, I think, fits with his whole um, approach. Sometimes the way he fashions himself in the office yeah. as a kind of mentor or sage. you know he wants to have wisdom as you say that he doesn't necessarily have yeah I guess with this too the desire to be the cool teacher and in this narrative of Mr. Handel he's he's running into the complexity of the cool teacher and not that every cool teacher has to do this (laughs) but even over the course of it as he tells it his language so when he first says oh and actually he hooked up with one of the students so hooked up this kind of slangy language that he would use to talk about two students getting together themselves and it's like it's fun it's fine but then it goes to 12 other kids came forward and it was in all the papers so even 
the the language that this story gets when he initially thinks it's kind of cool and then it seems to dawn on him um actually that was really not cool yeah but also the writing of that too makes it I like that it plays either way like when he's like really ruined eighth grade like is it the the story that came out like the the newspaper you know like, <laughs> or is it that is he understanding that Mr. Handel is the problem uh but you know I um, is an excellent excellent point it really could read in both ways it's a good joke um now I I only have like one or two more things um uh but the main one is just Michael I was wondering is it is it a reveal is this the first time we know that um Ryan has never made a sale hmm because that felt like a revelation or it, it or, I don't know I don't know if we knew it or not but it's certainly something that Ryan feels embarrassed about and is really interesting like it makes one wonder what has he been doing and yeah. uh and it was interesting it's an interesting kind of detail especially because of his pretentiousness and entitlement but also that Michael would keep an employee who is actually not that great at his job uh because he you know values them or something like that i mean arguably also wants to have sex with ryan because he calls him a tease so yeah your thoughts megan <laughs> ryan the tease well it is a little nice to see ryan knocked down like this ryan seems like somebody who is really good at talking the talk so i think he can come across as much more sophisticated than Michael. He knows this language of business that Michael's not able to fully engage with. He's able to do this presentation about how the company is not able to face the reality of the market. But if the company is facing the reality, they fire Ryan. So Ryan should go. According to his business principles, he should go. He's just costing the company money and he's making the company nothing. He was better as a temp when at least Michael could send him to Boston Market and, you know, to do more menial tasks, but that needed to be done. Ryan is weighing Dunder Mifflin down, but Michael's keeping him. So Ryan can criticize, but he lives on the fact that Michael considers it the people business rather than the profit business. I think you're right. I think that's a good read. And I think, uh, what'd you say? I think he should be grateful. Yeah. He's not, even at the end, he just thinks he's going to be fired. He's, he's, yeah, I guess you're right. He's pretty despicable. He's despicable. And then <laughs> the fact that he um, moves to the annex. And so when Michael tells him, no, you know, I'm just moving you back to the annex. And then he's, he he's like where Kelly is and we just see Kelly in her incredible delight when she finds out that Ryan is moving back by her it's such a great it's a great um ending it's also a great punishment in a way uh, and I was like wow Michael's perceptive um and wasn't there another was there a Toby punishment I can't remember if there was a time when he where Toby was like, I don't know if Michael did this intentionally, but if he did, like, that's yeah. 
Incredible. I don't know if we've hit that. Or Kelly, I that was, was Kelly somewhere else? And then Kelly moved back Kelly. to the Olympics. Right. I think that's it. Kelly's like, <laughs> <laughs> poor Kelly. Um, well, okay. So before we move over to the Dundies, I just wanted to uh, say something really important to all of our listeners um, and also to you, Megan, and that's may your hats fly as far as your dreams. <laughs> I really love that line. And I was just like, and, and uh, Ryan is like, it doesn't apply. And he's like, I know. <laughs> anyway, let's head on over to Chili's. I'm ordering a Presidente Margarita. You know, this time I'm, I think I'm going to get the sizzling fajitas. I like when they bring them out and they're sizzling. I oh, always yeah. Extra yeah. Uh, cheese and sour cream because they give you just a tiny little thing of cheese, um, which is insane. Uh, anyway, we're here. We're at Chili's. Dundee time. Do you know where you want to go? I do. I know exactly where I want to go. I've got two Dundies to give out today because I thought two characters were equally deserving. First, the Visiting Professor Award goes to Michael Scott. (laughs) And let me qualify this a bit. I do disagree firmly with his idea that you cannot learn from books. (laughs) (laughs) You're on record. Yeah, I'm on record saying that. I, I I definitely take issue with this idea that you can't learn from books, which is a way of saying you can't learn from other people. You can't in some way, right? You can't learn from other people who have maybe spent a great deal of time studying something. I think the, like the idea that you can only learn from life lessons is just a little... I feel like we keep using the word narcissistic, but maybe a little narcissistic to me that like, I can only learn from my own experience. I can't learn from somebody else. So I take a big issue with this. I will say in channeling the Dead Poet Society, which I now think I need to go back and re-watch, he takes out, so Robin Williams tears out the introduction that really tells people how to read poetry but he doesn't have them tear out the entire book right he's still going to be reading poetry but he's throwing out this really technical part where it's about putting it onto a graph and really putting it into a numerical scientific mode which sort of takes the art out of it and maybe that really works for michael scott because he doesn't have the the science of business down necessarily but i think one could argue he does have the art the other thing i want to mention about michael is his presentation which is completely built around the candy bars and being able to use them all it is creative um let me just read it let me just read the whole thing we've mentioned it but let me read it into the record because it's important he says so you want to start a business how do you start what do you need well first of all you need a building and that will come back with pam uh pam's art and secondly you need supply you need something to sell now this could be anything it could be a thingamajig or a hoosie whatsie or and he pulls out the candy bar oh whatchamacallit and he throws it into the crowd now you need to sell those in order to have a payday and he takes out the payday good candy bar by the way and if you sell enough of them you will make a 100 grand another candy bar and then my favorite moment 
Most of that speech is kind of terrible. But then when he just pulls out a Snickers and says, satisfied. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent use of the Snickers marketing. Also, in the venting machine, they're always covering over the label over the brand name in some way, but here they're just really leaning all into the brand names. They don't mess with them and they use the direct Snickers marketing of satisfied. So visiting professor award goes to Michael Scott. Also, I will say I can relate to him because the truth is it's tough to stand up in front of a, in front of a crowd of, of people like that. So he, you know, he does a good job. I don't know if I completely stand behind that, but I do think he needs, he deserves an award for it. My second Dundee, is the Courageous Art Award, and it goes to Pam Beasley, because although she might not be courageous in general, I do think it's courageous as an adult to go take an art class and share your art with the world and open yourself up to criticism. I love that. Um, I have uh, I have three, I have, yeah, I have three Dundies today. Somehow, based on your face, I knew three was coming. Yeah, I hope I hope you'll permit this. So, uh, the first Dundee is an honorable mention. Okay. Um, and it goes to for, it's the Art Appreciation Award, and it goes to Michael Scott nice. because I love the way he appreciates Pam's art and her effort, and makes her feel seen and and really yeah like gives it gives it the the time and energy it deserves. Really lovely. Um, so that's an honorable mention. This is going to piss you off so much. Um, but I, I, it, it has to be done. Um, hold on. I lost the script, so I need to pull it up again. Uh, I want to make sure that I get it right. Um, okay. So this Dundee is the good student award and it goes to, no, no. it goes to business student number one. Who says, sir, as a company that provides, that primarily distributes paper, how have you adapted your business model to function in an increasingly paperless world? Now, why am I giving this student an award? Number one, like this was an incredibly awkward presentation. Then Ryan interrupts, the professor's doing nothing, by the way. And Ryan is like, let's, this is more of a a question and answer kind of thing. And Michael says, "Um, okay, we can do questions. And he's like very good first hand up. So I think that Michael is appreciative of this student. And I am appreciative of the student because as a professor who has dealt with a quiet classroom and awkward presentations, it is very hard to have that crickets. And so the fact that this student is like, like steps up and I don't think whether the question was asked in a pretentious tone, I'll give you that. Okay. But I do think it's actually like a legitimate question and it's not as kind of demeaning as the other questions like and I can't remember is that student the one who says he is the one who says by your own employees calculation you'll be obsolete in the next five years but uh you know but if he hadn't said that then then Michael would never have known the truth and so business student number one is is it gets the good student award. I, I, am I trolling you? No, uh, but, <laughs> and then my final Dundee and I hate to do it, but it is necessary. And it is the Van Helsing award and it goes to 
Dwight Schrute. Uh, and I love the way that he jumps into action. I love the way that he's like, I'm going to solve the mystery. Love the way he says one crisis at a time or something like that. Yeah. And I really love the way that he's like, Jim's on his own journey and I wish him well. I just love that <laughs> moment. Um, and uh, so, yeah, those, those are my Dundies. Okay. Okay. So these Dundies were a little contentious. Michael is in the center of our Venn diagram, so he he gets some some props from both of us. But I will I will continue to reflect on this. And I guess business student number one, it is a genuinely good question. And if Michael had been able to answer it better, yeah, he had been somebody who really was thinking about that, as he probably should be. Um, the the conversation could have gone in a in a different direction, but unfortunately, they just seem a little too ready to attack. I think you're right. You're right. You're right. Listeners, let us know what's your take on Michael Scott's teaching and the students. Who do we blame for the conversation derailing? <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, we will be back next time for season three, episode eighteen. Uh, which is cocktails. Oh, yeah. I got to say quick, this episode has something for you and it's got something for me. Ooh, all right. I'm looking forward to it. Identify what those things are. I think you're going to know right away. Okay. Well, thanks everybody for listening. All right. Thank you. Bye.